How's it going, everyone? Today is my only the second day I have preached indoors, uh, other than like online stuff, but preached indoors with a group of people here since March. Uh, and the first time was yesterday. And I pastor another church uh, once a month, pretty much, uh, over in Gig Harbor. And I was there, and they, they're doing it inside. Over at North Hill, we're still doing it uh, outside, driving church. Um, just real quick, uh, I wanted to say um, <laughs> part of the reason that I'm here uh, is because uh, Pastor Dan was supposed to lead music at North Hill yesterday, um, and then he got sick uh, and texted me and it was like, oh, there's all these horrible like ailments that he has, and he's like, you know, I'm just looking for someone to preach, and I'm just like... I guess. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I know that he's sick because I know that he is the type of guy that will always come through on his commitments. But uh, he did send, is Kyla here? Kyla? Thank you so much for coming through yesterday to lead at, at North Hill. Um, really appreciate that. And uh, I'm just so grateful. Uh, Jeremy pointed out that, yeah, the, the bridging that happens between the two churches, it just, it's quite amazing. My church uh, that, that I grew up in, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination at least, um, I love it, and also we're uh, part of, of worshiping on Saturdays and, and keeping the Sabbath means that, uh, hear me out here, I don't believe this, but means that a large portion of Seventh-day Adventism believes that Sunday-keeping churches are like the devil, <laughs> and so there's, there's not a lot of bridging because it's kind of like we're doing the right thing and they are over there, so it's been amazing to have a relationship between two churches where we can do away with that and worship Jesus together and grow in, in, uh, in, in the fellowship and community that he called us to back in the, like, the book of Acts. And you see that people come together from all sorts of different places, different backgrounds, and worship Jesus together. Like, that's the beauty of it. So I'm just really grateful for, for, the, for our churches, for, for your church specifically. You guys are so generous. You guys think outside of the walls of your church to other churches, to other people outside of it. Um, I mean, man, like you guys have an amazing, amazing group of people. And you guys have an amazing staff. Uh, back when we were remodeling at North Hill, uh, we had a, a, a piano that was on the stage. And uh, you guys, a bunch of people helped out with the remodel. And last time I, I preached at LifeSpring, I made sure to thank everybody. But I forgot to mention that Jeremy and Jesse spent four hours of their day on the spur of the moment helping us move that piano from, down from the stage up onto a trailer, from the trailer moving it to somebody's house, having to having it to roll it up a hill, then realizing, oh, we're in the wrong, actually trying to put it in a place, realizing we couldn't fit it, rolling it up a hill so we could get it somewhere else, like four hours of their day. And so <laughs> just thank you guys. Um, yeah, anyways, so today, uh, well, I asked Pastor Dan, I was like, so are you guys in a series or anything like that? Uh, personally, over at North Hill, I'm going through the book of Mark, uh, and uh, Dan said, hey, we're going through the book of Luke. And I was like, oh, great, perfect. Um, and so he gave me the verses that would have been for this week. Uh, and then I was like, I shouldn't have agreed to this. Um, because, <laughs> because these are some of the, the hardest ones to, uh, it's, this is a, a, a pastor word, but to exegete, which means to, to pull something out of the text. Not to, not to read my own stuff in, but to, to actually ask what the text is saying. This is... <laughs> this is one of the hardest sections um, to do, and so thanks, Dan. I know I agreed to it, but thank you. Um, 
So today, before we start, I'm just going to pray real quick and uh, we'll get into this. Lord, I want to thank you so much for being with all of us, uh, regardless of denomination, regardless of, of political affiliation, regardless of, of background, race, whatever it is, Lord, that you, you will love us all equally. You are close to us intentionally. And I, I thank you for that, Lord. And so here we are today, different backgrounds, different, different things in our week, different lives, coming together to worship you, Lord. And I trust that you are here with us. I trust that you're going to speak uh, into our hearts today. Uh, and I trust that you have something to say today, even if this is hard and, and difficult to extrapolate and pull, uh, pull together. Then, Lord, I trust that you have something to say to us and to teach us in this time. So thank you, Lord, for everything you've already done, for what you're going to continue to do and what you're doing now. In your name, amen. Yeah, so let's just read uh, Luke chapter 16. You can open up your Bibles there. Luke chapter 16. 16 through 18, and you'll see why I am so excited to do this. Just kidding, I, I actually am. So this is verse 16. The law, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for at least for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the, woman, the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I'm about to preach the most inspiring message you've ever heard. <laughs> so here's actually why I am excited for this, is because I, I love the Bible. Um, and that may seem like, okay, you know, of course you're going to say that you're a pastor, but the Bible is... It's not only the Word of God, it's also literary genius. I mean, the, the, the people who are writing these things are inspired by God, and then they're, they're taking these stories and putting them together in ways that, that are really powerful as you take them apart and, and read deeper into it and take it apart and ask yourself, why is this being said here, in this context, in this part of the story, all of those things. And so uh, the, more we, the more we explore it, the more it's, it's, uh, it, it just kind of comes out in ways that are beautiful. So... The, the first part of why this is so difficult is because we see this thing. It says, the law and the prophets have been claimed until, uh, until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been preached. Okay, cool. Like we're, most of us are like, cool, yeah, I'm on board with that. But then you have Jesus say this, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of, the, of, a, of a pen to drop out of the law. And we're all like, well, hold up. <laughs> so, again, in my context growing up, as a, as a Seventh-day Adventist, I grew up learning that, you know, the law still mattered. Because obviously, uh, back in, in our history, people had gone back and said, hey, it says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, that means Saturday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, bam. And then that, out of that, came a tradition of, we're going to look at all of this and try and keep it. Now, not to the extent of Jewish people or, uh, say, Messianic Jews or anything like that, but like, we, wanna, we still want to take this seriously. What that has meant is a great deal of legalism has forced its way into Adventism through, through some of these ways. But a lot of other denominations end up learning, and I've heard, I've heard pastors say this before, in essence that the Old Testament, it's the Old Testament. You know, we focus on the New Testament. And the problem with that is I get the sentiment, but the problem with that is that the Old Testament matters so much. In fact... I would argue that you will never understand the New Testament and what Jesus is doing. You will never understand, especially like books like Revelation and things like that, until you see all of the references they're making to Old Testament themes and Old Testament ideas. 
Because what Jesus, what God is doing in the Old Testament is incredibly powerful. I mean, what he's setting up and what he's building and, and the ways that God intended for things to go, but then the ways human, humans failed, I mean, it's, it's powerful to learn all of this stuff. So we're going to have to go back a little ways and start looking at this because he talks about the law and he says that the law is still somehow, like it still matters. And for many of us as Christians, we learn, oh, I'm not sure if the law matters. So here's where it gets tough. Like, how do we talk about this? Because we don't often talk about this. Often, we, we just kind of leave the Old Testament. and It's hard. It's difficult. Okay. But let's, let's, walk, let's walk through this together. Before I, before I start getting into the verses we're going to talk through today, it's important to understand the context of this. Now, again, <laughs> because of the way this is, I'm, I promise you, this is not going to be a very exciting, like, like, you know, uh, uh, as I say this with, with all of the joy in my heart, this is not going to be an exciting Pentecostal sermon. <laughs> this is probably going to be more teaching than it is like, okay, we're going to get excited. But uh, I, do, I do enjoy going through this. So let's look, look back at the context. Now, I know that you guys have walked through these stories before, so I don't want to spend too much time on them. But we have to go back to understand the, the, the events leading up to what Jesus is saying here. So right before this has been a parable that Jesus tells, and it's one of the hardest parables for anybody to tackle, and it's the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, I don't know who preached on this, but I'm glad I didn't have to, uh, because it's, it's really difficult. In essence, the basic story, if you haven't heard it before, is that uh, Jesus tells a story about this, this guy who manages stuff for his master, the, the, the master finds out that this manager has been probably dealing dishonestly and says, I'm going to fire you. Well, the manager's like, oh, shoot, I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have any money. What am I going to do? I don't really want to go like, do physical labor. I don't want to beg. How am I going to work this out? So he goes to all of the people that owe his master money and says, hey, what do you owe him? Oh, you owe him 100? Write 80. Oh, you owe him 120? Write 50 on your, on your account. In essence, what he's doing is saying, like, hey, I'm not going to have a job here, but all of these people are going to be really grateful to me, so they'll take me in. They'll, they'll, they'll give a good word to somebody who will hire me, you know, whatever it is. He is ingratiating himself to them using dishonest means. And then Jesus says, well, then the master finds out what the guy does and commends him for it. And then we have this, this hard section here where... Uh, where Jesus says, I tell you, make friends of yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that then it fa- if it fails, they may receive you into, the, into, inter- into eternal dwellings. And you're like, whoa, is Jesus, is Jesus uh, uh, advocating for the behavior of this, this manager? Well, no. But what he is saying is basically, uh, dishonest people in this world know how to interact and ingratiate themselves to others using dishonest means, Right? How much more then should we as followers of Jesus then use our unrighteous wealth, meaning the money, the, the car, the house, the stuff in our bank account, the things that we have that are of this world, how much more should we use and be wise about using those things in a way that will endear ourselves to others? Not even endear in the way of like, so that they will give us something. But rather, I mean, if you think about it in the context of everything else Jesus says, but to use the things that we have in this world that are unrighteous wealth, 
not meaning that you got it in a bad way, but just stuff that's not of heaven, how much wiser should we be about using that in ways that help others, that grow other people, that go outside of the walls of our own home instead of building up our own wealth? And that's going to come into play later because Jesus, again, he's not, he's not advocating for his dishonesty because what he, what he says next is one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. We see at the beginning of the story, this steward, this manager, is already dishonest. And so when something bad happens, he becomes more dishonest. How much more should we then be faithful with the small things so that when we get to bigger things, we are faithful with those? So this is, these are some of the, the lessons that Jesus is pulling out of all of this. Well, here's why I went back into the story. Because the next part here is the Pharisees... Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to him, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees, meanwhile, hear this story and they're, they're like laughing to themselves. They're laughing amongst themselves at this, this stupid story that this Nazarite guy is telling. This is dumb. Right? That's, that's a, that's, if you're the master, like what all, why would you commend that? If you're the master, you hate this guy because he's stolen money from you. This is your money. That's not good. And so they're laughing at Jesus. What a dumb story you're telling. And Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus, loving, lamb-like, just, just sweet Jesus, calls him out hard. <laughs> and it's like, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but what you're doing is an abomination before God, which is always the things I love to hear from Jesus. <laughs> and so he calls them out on this, and then we see this all lead into what we're about to talk about. Because at least what it sounds like with the Pharisees is Jesus has just encouraged people Hey, use the stuff that's not gonna it's not gonna last. Your your money, your car, your your house, it's not gonna last forever. Use it well, use it wisely, use it for the kingdom, as opposed to just building it up for yourselves. And here are the Pharisees laughing at the story because we can assume, based on other stories we've seen, based off of what we know about Pharisees, is that they were very wise at building up their own self. They were very wise about what you might call building their brand, right? That's something that we see all the time. If you're on social media, you see people building their brand. Because what you're doing is you're building up this little, this little kingdom for yourself, saying, man, like, I am wise about how I use my money. I go out and I invest wisely and all that stuff, and then I have a nice house, and that's why I use my money wisely. That poor guy over there, he's poor because he's not doing what I'm doing. Look at everything that I've got. And we know the Pharisees tended to build up their little kingdoms. And so they value the wealth and the status and the, and the feeling that comes around from them walking around and everyone looking at them like, oh man, I wish I had a life kind of like that. And Jesus, meanwhile, what he's advocating for is different. Use your money. Don't keep it to yourself. Use your money wisely so that the people around you will actually like you as opposed to being like, well, I'd like to be him so that I don't have to help anybody. So Jesus and the Pharisees are already at odds. They don't see things the same way. And this is where now we can get to what Jesus says. 
So this is where he goes. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, I just want to focus on that for a second. The way that Jesus starts out his ministry, in at least the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, pretty much either after he gets baptized or even before, stated even before, depending on which book you're reading, the, the, the basic premise that Jesus is doing, like, like the, the, the mission statement, and I hate using that word because I don't love it, but in essence, if we were to say that this was the sentence that described what Jesus was doing all throughout his life, death, and resurrection, is that Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God. Which is an in- interesting thing. Again, in my context growing up, because Matthew uses the, verse kingdom of he- or uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, we always thought about it as, oh, it's talking about heaven someday. When Jesus comes back, we go to heaven. But, but if, you read, if you read the Gospels especially, and then go back in the Old Testament and see the themes that, they're, pulling, that they're, they're drawing from, you see that the kingdom of God is something that God has always been advocating for. All the way back in Genesis, it's, you, don't, you don't see the words kingdom of God, but you see that as God creates a beautiful place where people can live and, and grow and thrive and take care of things, that's God's kingdom. God is king. And then he actually gave us the, the authority to kind of be like governors or, 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 or minor kings and queens of the world where we take care of it as we're called to do. That's what Genesis sets up. And then all throughout the Old Testament, it's about the failure of that because in Genesis 3, we decided that we're going to be kings. We're going to be queens of our own lives. We want to be like God. Well, the whole story of the Old Testament is the failure of that project. As we try to be kings and queens of our own lives, gain our own authority, or give authority over to a single person who ended up either really loving God or really not loving God and leading the people astray, that's the whole story of the Old Testament. So when Jesus shows up, he is drawing on all of that and including the prophets who have been promising about this restoration, this beautiful moment where the Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore all things. And so, so Jesus is, is, is on the foundation of all of that message. But he begins, he begins to preach the kingdom of God. But the problem that, that, that the, the Jewish people will have at the time is that their idea of the kingdom was of a secular kingdom that, that was going to be governed by a king who's going to come with military authority, who's going to win their freedom from the Romans and from all, all the other oppressors. He's going to set up this place that, you know, all the disciples are excited. Actually, in Mark, I've been preaching about this. The, the disciples are like, hey, who's going to, who's going to be the, the best general? Who's going, to, who's going to be the prime minister? Who's going to be the finance guy in the new kingdom? Like, that's what they're thinking about. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus is like, hey, if you want to be first, you've got to be last and a servant of all. Because his kingdom is not, going, is not intended to come in some sort of worldly, it's going to have borders, it's going to have a government, it's going to have all these things. God's kingdom is wherever people allow him to be king. Meaning that your life, today, God can be king and the little space around you can be part of the kingdom of God. The way that you use your house, your wealth, your money, your character, your talents, all of that stuff is you being part of the kingdom of God and growing it wherever you are. And Jesus begins to preach this. That's his message. And then we come to this. So the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been preached. And people are trying to force their way into it. I mean, Jesus is being followed by crowds. People are, are so excited about this. John the Baptist, his cousin, his predecessor, had been, had been preaching this idea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around and head the opposite direction of the destructive way you've been going and turn around and be part of the kingdom. Okay, 
Y'all with me so far? Like, this is exciting stuff. Like, this is beautiful. This is good. And then Jesus has to go mess it all up. Because he goes, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's like, okay, well, okay. I was cool with all of this. But see, I don't want to have to be the guy who doesn't shave the corners of his head because that's one of the Old Testament laws. I don't want to have to be one of those people who, uh, who how do I put this? <laughs> who, if there's mildew in my house, I have to leave my house for a while. And if it doesn't go away, I need to burn my house down. Because that's a law for tents in the Old Testament. Okay, so now we have a dilemma. We have a problem because... How does this all carry over? How does this work? Now, the Law and the Prophets are actually, this, they have this beautiful interwoven purpose. So the Law is what we know is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteron- Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books. In those five books, you can extrapolate out to about 618, I believe the number is, individual commands that the Jewish people uh, had over time extrapolated out and tried to keep as well as they could. That was the law. But there's this beautiful purpose to it. I mean, maybe for some of us we would know, say, like the Ten Commandments. That's, that's maybe the most popular one. But just think about this. Those ten major commands, 618 overall, somehow they have a beautiful purpose. So if you're a parent... If you've had children, maybe they're grown up, maybe you still have young kids. If you're a parent, you're, you know that your children, at least to start out with, did not know anything about safety. Your kid will touch a stove because it's red and bright. That looks awesome. Okay, well that didn't turn out good. Your kid would walk straight into traffic because there are balls out there. Kids don't know anything about safety. Well, as a parent... The way that you address this is not, okay, well, Johnny, I want you to be safe, okay? So just do things that are safe. Like, don't do things that are potentially unsafe. I mean, Johnny's looking at you like, okay, cool, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. And then go seize the stove, and it's like, well, that's bright. Because as a parent, you know that teaching your child some big, ethereal, up-in-the-air idea of safety does not then teach them what safety is. And so what the law is, is kind of like this. It's like, hey, listen, you don't know what loving your neighbor looks like. You don't know what loving God looks like. I mean, they just come out of 400 years of slavery of being oppressed. They don't really know God. They know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this, this God that's out there, but they also have all the influences of the Egyptian gods and all this stuff pressing in on them. And God's like, hey, let me tell you. With some of this is in a cultural context for most of it, let me tell you what this looks like for you to create a good society, to create a good group of people who love each other and care for each other. Let me tell you how to, how to, how to fix things when they go wrong. Right? Here's, here's how you would deal with matters of justice, uh, or, or like at least like penal justice. Let me tell you how to deal with matters of, ju- of social justice with, poor, with the poor and the orphan and all these different things. And so what he does is gives them a concrete ability to see what's right and wrong. I remember I, w- I worked as a counselor at a summer camp. 
and I was sub-counseling one week, which meant that uh, every, every week you have a day off. And so I would go take over for the counselor whose, whose day off it was. And I remember I was in this cabin where there was this kid who was just off the walls. I mean, he was, uh, this would have been 10 to 12-year-olds. He was just off the walls. And uh, it, was, it was funny sometimes, but he was just, he wouldn't listen, he would distract kids, and he never meant badly, but he just was bouncing all around. I mean, his attention was just everywhere. And I remember part of my job as a sub-counselor is to be a little bit harder on the kids than maybe their normal counselor would be, because their normal counselor has to have them for a week. And so they, what you don't want is for me to come in, be all cool and chill, and all the kids are like, well, why can't we have that guy when their real counselor comes back? So I'm supposed to be a little bit harder on him. So I'm pretty hard on this kid. And one time uh, later that week, uh, their, their counselor was back, but he was talking with, with another uh, uh, camper outside the cabin because the, the camper was having a hard time. He was crying. And I hear inside the cabin, it's just chaos. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, man, I'll take care of your cabin inside so you can take care of the situation outside. So I go in, and the main kid is the one causing the chaos. So I, pu- I, I, have him, I pull him out of the room. Uh, I go to another cabin. I grab another counselor. I have him go in the bathroom. And I learned this from another counselor. And I was like, hey, dude, you want to make noise? I look at my watch. You have one minute, and you need to make as much noise as you possibly can. He's like, oh, this is awesome. And then 30 seconds in of him trying to make noise, he's like, oh, this is, I'm getting tired. I was like, no, you have to go for the full minute. He's like, okay. And he, start, he starts trying to yell, 45 seconds and he's done. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I won't make any more noise. It worked. <laughs> he didn't make any more noise that night. It was weird because I was really tough on this kid, but at the end of the week, on Friday night, we usually have like this, this moment. It's kind of a, a powerful spiritual moment. Um, the kids get to go to the, to the lakeside. It's kind of meant to be a, a time for them to connect spiritually. And this kid started, he, he asked me, hey, could you come along with our cabin, which is weird. And we go out to the lake, and he ends up sitting with me off to the side and telling me about some of the hardships in his life. When he left on Sunday, he was so excited to say, like, hey, I'm going to miss you. I'll see you later. He was so excited to see me. I was baffled by it. Like, I was the hardest one on this kid. And I was talking to our camp director later. He's like, yeah, sometimes kids at home don't have boundaries that their parents set out for them. And what they actually interpret, they don't actually interpret that as love because they, they're left with no sort of point of reference in the world. And so sometimes when you give them structure, they'll rebel against it, but they interpret it as love. And I was blown away by it. Never thought of it like that. And what I think God is doing in this context is He is giving them structure to say, hey, this is good, this is bad, here you go. So that's what the law was, was meant for. But then you get to the, the, uh, the prophets. So if the law was built so that people who were kind of like baby followers of God could have structure to be able to learn what it looked like to follow God, then the prophets are talking to the adults who grew up. Because here's part of the problem, right? If you, let's say that one of the rules you laid out for your kids was hey, before you run out into the street, you need to turn around and ask me if it's safe, right? Maybe that's one of the rules you laid out for your kids when they were young. And so they do that, and they learn that. And then 20, or like they're 20 years old in college, they're, they're gone. They're like, cool, okay, they're, they're good to go. You get a call one day, they're like, hey, mom, can I cross the street? 
And you're like, I have failed as a parent. Because the point of giving them those rules to begin with was to teach them the principles that would allow them to flourish later on. The point of ask, my, ask mom before, it's before I cross the street is be safe before you cross the street. That's the point of it all. Learn how to be safe before you cross the street. So you'd hope that a lot of these things that are laid out in the law that people would begin to learn. Okay, if I'm supposed to do justice for those who are, are, are poor who have, or are orphans or widows who have nothing, if I'm supposed to do that, then maybe instead of just keeping the letter of the law, which is give them five bucks, maybe I would take them into my home or maybe I would help an organization that would be able to take care of them, whatever it is. Maybe I'd learn to love them beyond just doing the simple basics that I'm supposed to do. But that's the problem, is that the people of Israel, as they went along, they stopped learning. They stopped growing beyond what, just what the law said. It's what we do as humans, right? I mean, how many of us are like, well, I wasn't speeding because everybody else was. You are like, Okay, well, what's the letter of the law? Well, I don't like the letter of the law, right? I just go by the spirit of the law. But then in other things, it's like, no, I want the, I want the letter of the law. But either way, you'd hope that over time you get the principle. The principle of speed limit is be safe. But they didn't get it. Over and over they didn't get it. And what that meant is over time they decided, well, we're not going to let God be king. We're going to still be our own kings and queens. That's what all of the worshiping God is about submitting yourself to God, allowing Him to be your king instead of going off in your own direction. Well, they don't do that. And what that means is they start to lose the values. They start to become people who, I mean, you, you see in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, justice, there's no justice in the streets. People are willing to take a bribe simply to, uh, to gain some money. I mean, I'll take 20 bucks if, if you want me to testify against this guy so you win in court. I'll do it. I mean, it doesn't hurt me. I get 20 bucks from it. I mean, these are people who are supposed to be following God, and yet they are just doing their own thing for their own gain. And that's what the prophets call out over and over and over again. You have forgotten about the poor. You have forgotten about the widow. You have forgotten about the orphan. You, you, you're bringing, like, you get to, you get to these, these places in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the Bible where, he, where the, the prophets, where a prophet will actually call out the letter of the law. For instance, in the book of Malachi, the, the prophet is, is, God is speaking through this prophet, and he's calling this, this thing against the people. He's like, hey, listen, you're bringing blind and lame and deaf animals to sacrifice to me. And I don't think God's like, oh, well, I'm so above that. I think his point is, you have no respect for me in your heart. You wouldn't give that to anybody in this, in this earth. But you're bringing it to me because you don't actually value who I am. And that shows something about your heart. This is less about me needing you to love me and, and more about you are not going to end up being a good person because you don't value what I value. So he calls out the letter of the law because they've forgotten that. But more so almost the whole time in the prophets is these moments where they're calling out, hey, you're keeping the law, but you've missed something. Like in Amos. Maybe you've heard this before. In the book of Amos, chapter 5, God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat animals, I won't look at them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I won't listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. His whole point is you're doing all of the motions, what you're supposed to do according to these commands you learned as a kid, but you have not grown above them to the point where you understand why they're there. And so now you're doing all these things, but you, 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 you're not people of justice. You're people who are unrighteous, people who don't look like me in the world. You're not bearing my image well. And the reason we bring all of this up is because Jesus, he says, the law and the prophets, they won't pass away. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for a single stroke to disappear from the law. And I think it would be safe to assume that what Jesus is calling out here is these Pharisees who, remember, we went back and looked at why they were laughing at Jesus and now why Jesus is responding to them. Because here they are keeping the letter of the law. Do they have to take care of the people around them? Well, no. But, I mean, they're doing the small little things they ought to do, you know, according to the law. They're, they're, they're being good, let's, let's modernize it, they're being good Christians, but are they being good followers of Jesus? Do they really understand what it means to love people well? Or are they just hoarding all of their wealth and their money? Are they just keeping it all to themselves and building their own brand and building their own little, their own little kingdom while people around them suffer? And I think that's why Jesus calls it out. He's pointing out to them, hey, listen, the, exact sa- the, the, those, the law and the prophets, they won't die out. But you've totally missed just like the people in the prophets, like the, the people of Israel during the time of the prophets, they totally missed the point. They were doing a lot of the right things, but they weren't really, they didn't have the heart that was going to inform all of their life. Because that's the thing about law. You can keep law just by be kind of being a robot. Right? A robot functions off of, this is what I'm supposed to do now, this is my command here, this is what I do now, and if, I, if there's no other information, I don't do anything about it. But as human beings, we were given a heart. So, so what we usually do to feel better about ourselves, we will do the commands, the right things that, were, that, that are laid out. Okay, well, I'll give some tithe. I, I will, I will, uh, I'll come to church most weeks. I will, you know, all of those things. But then outside of this, on, on social media, our real hearts come out when we're talking to somebody who disagrees with us politically as we spew violent vitriol at them and then come here and be like, here I am to worship. But what if worshiping God is also the way I talk to people that I disagree with? What, what, if, the, what if the way I worship God is in having a listening ear to those that may have different views than me? What if it's using my, my time, to go back to that parable, using the, 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 the things that I have, my time, my resources, to actually be somebody who's present in other people's lives instead of building up a little wall so I don't have to interact with other people. And I can just kind of live in my own little bubble. Man, it's a hard thing Jesus teaches. Because what he's calling out is he's saying the law and the prophets, they won't go away because everything I'm teaching is based on those same ideas. The principles won't die. We understand later in the book of Acts that when they start uh, saying, hey, Gentiles are welcome in the church, 
We understand that the law in and of itself is not a required thing to keep for these people that are coming in to follow Jesus. There's a few things that they lay out. Hey, we want you to not eat food, sacrifice to idols, different things like this. We understand that the law is not something to keep. But what that has meant for us as Christians, we've been like, okay, cool, the law is done with. Push that away, it's bad. But Paul points out, is one of the strongest points of the law is that it points out, hey, this is right, this is wrong, this is sin, this is not. But that's the easiest part for, for Christians. It's easy to say, oh, here's the black and white parts. It's a lot harder to live in the gray. It's a lot harder to have the heart of Jesus Christ that then lives itself out in things in, in, in the world that don't have black and white commands given about them. And so Jesus says it is way easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Let me point out now, using this last verse that I'm supposed to cover today, about how this, how this uh, is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, affirmed by the next thing Jesus says. This seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the text, but we're going to read it. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now this is a sore spot for a lot of us. Isn't it? I just had a friend recently who was married about six months after me go through a divorce. It's rough. And the way that that divorce went was not his fault. So I'm like, dude, get remarried. But here, Jesus is like, hey, if you get remarried, you're committing adultery. Well, shoot. <laughs> Jesus doesn't always say the easiest things. Well, understanding this in context is super important. If we go back, we go back and look at what Jesus, at, at, at uh, the book of Mark. <clears throat> the story is filled out more surrounding this phrase. And the, and just kind of understanding this will help us understand why Jesus says this immediately after what we just went over. The story's filled out a, a little bit more. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him if he thinks it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And Jesus asks them, hey, well, what does Moses say about it? And they say, quoting Deuteronomy, I believe it's Deuteronomy, quoting Deuteronomy, they say, uh, yeah, you can, you can get a divorce as long as you give a certificate of it. You have to write out a certificate, give it to the, give it to the woman, and then you can divorce her. Well, the reason this, this was in place is because, unfortunately, what would happen in that culture is if a woman didn't have a man that she was married to, especially if she, be, if she was you know, past the age of marriage, then she immediately began to lose status. I mean, she can't own anything. She can't, she can't have anything of her own. She, all through a man. And whether that was good or not, that was culture at the time. And so, unfortunately, what what some of the men would do is they would leave women, they would leave their wives without saying, I'm divorcing you. They would leave them, leave them with nothing, and also with the stigma of, is she married, is she not? I can't marry her. That That would be defiling myself. And so Moses puts forth, if there really is a problem with her, again, I'm talking from their culture right now, not from modern culture, because this is a a male-oriented culture, if there really is a problem with her, you can write a certificate of divorce and let her go. Well, Jesus responds, because they say this, that's lawful, right? Remember, this is something that is, you can do it. Moses wrote it, so if you want to get a divorce, write a certificate, you're good. But then Jesus quotes Genesis. He says, hey, when you were married, you become one flesh. So what God has joined together, let no man tear apart.
And what he does there is incredible. He's saying, yes, technically lawful. Awesome. But if you go back to what was originally intended, divorce was never on the table. And his point is, hear me out here, his point is, you can do something that is technically lawful, but not at all in keeping with what I always have wanted for you. Not in keeping with having a heart that's saying, oh, hey, maybe we should work this out as opposed to me just ditching you. Now, I understand there are so many reasons for divorce in this world, and there are a lot of really good ones. I don't think Jesus' point here is, well, you can't ever get divorced. Because I've seen some really rough situations where it was definitely called for. I've seen situations where people needed to be divorced from the person, the other person because they were hurting them so badly. So I don't think that Jesus is just saying, flatline, you can never get divorced. I think his point is, y'all are trying to look for reasons to be able to do it. But that's not, the, that's not really the kind of heart you ought to have. The heart you ought to have is the one I built in you from the very beginning, which is that you are one flesh joined together, supposed to be, supposed to never be broken apart. And he's speaking to not just divorce, but all of it. Okay, technically, you could just, you know, drop a dollar for that person. But my heart for you is that you would help people. That you would love people beyond just the drop a dollar in their plate. My heart for you is that you would go beyond, because technically, Jesus said, you know, in in the Bible says, don't gossip. You know, well, I'm not gossiping. You know, I'm just talking about something that I'm really concerned about in somebody. And hey, mate, there are valid times to do that. But how how many times do we need a heart that instead of just keeping the law, keeping the letter of it, goes above and beyond and does what Jesus would do as opposed to just the bare minimum that I have to do? So I think that if you have been divorced, if you're reading this and you're just like, ooh, that's a tough one, you can read this in its context, which is that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I understand there are reasons for it, but this is not the way that I intended it for. This is not what I hoped for. And I want you to have a heart that is willing to go above and beyond as opposed to just doing the bare minimum. That's a heart that I want to have as a Christian in all aspects of my life. I think that's the, that's the heart that Jesus is calling us to. That's why the law and the prophets won't ever die. Because everything that Jesus is, is talking about is built on it. I wonder if, for us as followers of Jesus, we, uh, we are careful to do the bare minimum. Feeling like that's a really tough thing. Because sometimes the bare minimum that God calls us to is pretty high. But I also believe that God has promised us His Spirit. He said, I want to come and dwell in you. That you might have my heart. That you might live in the way that I'm calling you to. And so if we're going to put all this together, the band can come up now if you want. If we're going to put all this together, it's basically this. Jesus says, hey, I want you to use your resources wisely. Not, not hoarding them up for yourselves. I want you to use them wisely. The Pharisees are like, well, hey, we kind of like hoarding it up for ourselves. That sounds dumb. And Jesus says, hey, listen, what you're doing, yes, technically lawful, but it's an abomination in the sight of God. 
Because with the law and the prophets, the things that go back to the very beginning of your story, what they are calling you to is to much greater than you are aspiring to. It's calling you to have a, a, a wider and deeper and, and larger heart for people than you have. It's calling you to look at situations that, yeah, I, can, I guess I, you know, God doesn't say I can't do it, or God says I, I can only do this, or I, I only have to do this much. And Jesus is saying, what if you just had my heart? Instead of just doing the bare minimum, what if you had my heart? And so I think that's my prayer for us today that we would have the heart of God, understanding that, that the law has its place. It really does. It shows us what's good, what's bad. But that God is calling us to have His heart, not just to be the bare Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank You so much that You do call us to more. I think of my life, if there hadn't been people in my life who said, no, you're better than that. And, and no, you can, you can do greater than that. And what you're... What you're aspiring for what you're living for right now is not it's not enough you can do more i think of my life without those people and it's not the same and lord it's the same with you lord you you call us to greater on purpose because what you're calling us to yes it's harder yes it, it, it takes more self uh, uh, reflection yes it, it takes a lot more than we often think we need to put in but when we live with you dwelling in us, it changes everything. Lord, when we, when we live with the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we love more radically than we ever thought we could. We have a heart for people that's willing to listen to people, even if their ideas sound crazy, because we love them. We have a heart that's, that's willing to, to open ourselves up to, to situations that might be uncomfortable or hard or difficult. Because we know that with you, we not only have the heart to love those people, but we have the strength to be able to get through the hardship. We trust you, Lord. We know that sometimes there are going to be things in this world that aren't what you, what you wanted. Things like divorce, things like poverty, things, all these horrible things that will exist in this world simply because it's broken. But Lord, let us not settle for those things. Let us not just settle for the bare minimum. Oh, those things should are always going to exist, so I guess I won't do anything about it. Lord, but let us strive beyond the bare minimum. Let, let us not just not, not even strive by trying with our own effort to do all of these things, but strive to kneel before your feet, to lay our burdens down, to rest in your presence and invite your spirit into our hearts. Let that be the, 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 the most, the, the hardest that we strive is to rest in you so that you may live in us. And that when, we, when we walk out of those places of being with you, that the world notices a difference in us. Thank you, Lord. In your name.